Our first presentation is uh, by uh, Jillian Bruning of the USDA on microbial contaminants found in Louisiana sugar factories. Please welcome Jillian Bruning. Good morning. So I'm excited to be talking with you today about some work we started um, in 2021 when I started at USDA, kind of in the middle of the pandemic. So we were lucky when we got to go into the lab sometimes. Um, so you might recognize in the background here, these little bacteria. Those are actually stock that some of you have probably heard of before. Um, and a lot of the work I'm going to show you today, a lot of it's been done by the postdoc in the lab, Dr. Yunsi Chi, who's been very productive. And um, this work was funded in part by the American Sugar King League, which we certainly appreciate. So why should we study microbes in the post-harvest processing streams? Like, what's the point? Why can't we just look at crusher juice or mixed juice or even biofilms? Well, it turns out there's a lot of variation that occurs in the juices from one factory to another in terms of the soil or sediment, the microbial load, as well as the microbial composition. Um, and so it can be hard to um, control for different variables between the different uh, juices from the different factories. And so um, what we've done is to look at the actual microbes present in those streams so that we can start to address the questions of you know, which ones are consuming the most sucrose, um, which ones are producing the problematic exopolysaccharides like dextrans or fructans? Um, and then once we have the isolates, we're able to test them for the EPS production and look at susceptibility to different biocides. So the first thing, though, I want to show you is a culture-independent technique that we've done. And this is to do a profiling of the microbial communities present in the juices and biofilms in the factories. And the technique we used is called amplicon-based sequencing. And this is really nice because it gives us a comprehensive look at all of the microbes present in the factories. And so on the left panel here, we have the bacterial community shown. And this is through sequencing of the 16S V4 region. And I don't know how well you can see how these are labeled down here, but we have them separated out into crusher juice, mixed juice, and biofilm fractions. And these came from three different factories. And so if we look at the colors down here, the most prevalent uh, bacteria that we really see is usually either Leuconostoc or Wasella. And that's not a huge surprise. Um, there's also some Lactobacillus present. But what's interesting, when we look at the biofilms, uh, there's less microbial diversity in the biofilms. You can see, again, Leuconostoc with some Lactobacilli, sometimes Zymomonas. And so this tells us that not all the bacteria present in the juices go on to form biofilms. And likewise, over in panel B here, we looked at the fungal communities as well. And this is through sequencing of the ITS1 region. And if we look at the juice fractions again, there are several organisms present, including Saccharomyces, uh, Meazyma, and some others. 
um, that you know some of us maybe haven't heard of too much. But there's a lot of different fungi present in the juices that come in on the sugarcane stems, leaves, and the soil, and all of that. But what's really interesting, if you look at the biofilms over here, they're almost exclusively composed of Saccharomyces yeast, with the exception of a little bit of these two here, with some Ascomycetes. And so, uh, taken together, this tells us that the main organisms that we see in the biofilms or the gums in the factory are Leuconostoc and Saccharomyces. So um, this is a really, really nice way to look at everything that's present without as much bias. And so uh, the pros of this are that it's very high throughput. You can run hundreds of samples and identify hundreds of organisms this way. Um, it's more comprehensive with less human bias, and it can also inform um, downstream microbial isolation strategies that I'm going to talk with you about next. Um, the cons are that it's expensive, and it requires a lot of technical expertise in terms of molecular biology and bioinformatics, so not everybody can do this, uh, this kind of study. Um, and the other thing is that doing just the profiling doesn't give us any isolates that we can actually test. So our approach has been to do both the culture-independent profiling as well as culture-dependent identifications. And so the second part that I'm going to show you today is uh, with some of the isolations and identifications that we've done, which are considered to be culture-dependent. So the pros of this approach are that um, once we do get the isolates, we can do more targeted testing with these isolates uh, such as biocide testing to see which ones might be the most effective against some of the most problematic bacteria or yeast. And we can also study the mechanisms of EPS formation and look and see how um, EPS structure may affect its susceptibility to different control enzymes. Uh, the drawbacks to this are that it's time consuming and when we culture things, they can be biased by different lab conditions, whether it's the growth media, the temperature or some other thing we haven't even thought of. Um, it's also biased by humans picking the colonies off the plates and which ones look interesting to us. And uh, it's just very low throughput and time consuming and the auger plates just seem to exponentially grow in the lab with stacks and stacks and so we can get out of hand pretty easily. So we try to manage these things but uh, it's quite a bit of work. So I just wanted to show you some of the pictures of what it looks like to culture these microbes in the lab because it's a lot of fun if you like to deal with slimy and stinky things. We, we have a lot of fun there. And so um, what you see here are these auger plates containing a sugar cane medium made with crusher juice that came from one of the factories. And so when the juices come in, we'll do dilutions and plate them out on these plates trying to replicate the conditions that are in the factory kind of as close as we can. And so this is kind of representative of what we tend to see. We see these nice little bubble, slimy colonies all over the plates when we get our dilutions right. And some of them just look, you know, super slimy and they just kind of run all over the plate, whereas others will be ropey. And if we touch them with a toothpick, you'll just see a sticky, ropey string come off the plate. So it's pretty interesting to pick and streak these things out. And so this is an example to show you of what it looks like when we streak for isolation in the lab. These are different Leuconostoc isolates. 
um, where we're streaking, trying to get these nice isolated colonies here. It gets complicated, though, because a lot of these microbes love to make EPS on sucrose. And so some of them <laughs> look very slimy, and they just kind of run together on the plate. So it can be hard to get isolated colonies sometimes. And it also shows you that there's a lot of variation in the amount of EPS the different isolates from the factories will produce. So they're definitely not all the same. But once uh, in the lab, once we get isolated colonies of uniform appearance, we'll perform colony PCRs um, with either 16S primers for the V4 or V3 and V4 region or the ITS region. And so we get these little PCRs that we run out, these little snippets of DNA, and then we send them off for sequencing. And once we get the sequencing, we can blast them and figure out um, you know, the ID of those microbes. So these are the results we have so far from the culture-dependent isolations. And uh, on the left panel here, these are grouped from these last two seasons um, in order of abundance. So the most common one we isolated was Leuconostoc, followed by Saccharomyces and some other bacteria you may or may not have heard of. Some other notable ones are Pantoea, and Gluconobacter, and several members of the Enterobacteriaceae family. And then the only other yeast we found was one Porulospora yeast. Um, so that's kind of interesting. And then over here on the right panel, we have them grouped according to the year. So in 2021 when we started, these are uh, the isolates we found, mostly Leuconostoc, Saccharomyces, Gluconobacter, and a little bit of Pantoea. And then this year from this season, um, we got a lot more different isolates, and we think it's because our isolation strategy was a little bit different. In particular, we found that we had to grow the organisms a little bit differently so we could get better isolated colonies and they wouldn't be running all over the plates. So if you look at last year, we did more streaking out on the sugarcane media, which is kind of like if, you know, someone's eating a lot of pizza or greasy cheeseburgers, they're going to be bigger, probably. Whereas if someone's eating a lot of salad or diet food, they're going to be skinny, so we're going to get smaller colonies that we can pick and streak out for isolation. So there, there are a few little differences in between how we did our isolations last year and this year. So it's not like a fair apples-to-apples -apples comparison. But we found a lot more organisms with this approach, including, again, Leuconostoc and Saccharomyces, Pantoea, um, Chrysiobacterium, and a lot of other interesting things. Um, so this is nice just to see all of these isolates we have now that we can go on to do further testing. So I'm going to show you a little bit of the testing that we've done so far. So to address the question of, um, you know, how much sucrose do some of these organisms consume, uh, we did flask experiments made of uh, crusher juice broth, and we ran four Leuconostoc isolates, um, some Gluconobacter isolates, and then some yeast. And sure enough, they all consume sucrose like we, like we predicted, but it turns out Gluconobacter consumes about three times as much as Leuconostoc. And then if we look at yeast, they consume all of their sucrose in 48 hours or less. And so this is important because it tells us there are other organisms to be worried about in the juices than just Leuconostoc that can readily um, consume sucrose and lead to sucrose losses. In fact, Gluconobacter consumed three times as much 
uh, sucrose as leuconostoc, which was a little surprising. But then we also have to take into consideration the relative abundance of these different organisms, what they, how much there tends to be of each of these in the different juices to start thinking about potential impact on sucrose losses. Um, what you'll also see is that at the beginning, we kind of have a one-to-one -one ratio of a little bit of glucose and fructose present. Um, but at 48 hours, that ratio between glucose and fructose changes. And so with leuconostoc, there's less glucose than fructose available. And that's reflected if we look at the ratio over here on the right. The ratio from glu of glucose to fructose decreases in those cultures, probably because these isolates are producing dextrans. And on the other hand, if we look at the gluconobacter strains, um, the amount of glucose is much higher than fructose, meaning that these uh, ratios dramatically increase over twofold. And this is consistent with what's in the literature about this organism producing levan fructans. All right, so next I just wanted to show you um, some qualitative analysis that we've done on exopolysaccharide production by some of these bacterial isolates. And so on the left panel, we have spotting onto a glucose-based medium, and on the right, we have spotting onto a sucrose-based medium. And if you look at these panels up here, you'll see the gluconobacter isolates, and you see they produce EPS only on sucrose, so their production is sucrose-dependent, and they produce this profuse, watery EPS. And down here, we spotted a bunch of leuconostoc isolates, and here are these EPS little um, EPS bubbles on the plate, if you look at them. And uh, there's a lot of variability between all the strains we tested, meaning they don't all produce the same amounts of EPS. And then if we look down here, uh, Pantoea is kind of an outlier, and it's kind of one of these weird organisms because it's able to produce EPS on both uh, glucose and sucrose because it uses different mechanisms for producing EPS than these other bacteria. And then also, um, <clears throat> we've also noticed that with some of these isolates of leuconostoc, we find that EPS production seems to facilitate aggregation of the cells. So if we grow them just on glucose, I don't know how good a picture that is, um, you can see just these single-celled little bacilli floating around. But if we grow them on fructose, we see these huge clumps forming that are very difficult to dissociate, and they're all throughout the viewing slide on the, on the microscope. So we think that EPS production plays a role in the formation of the biofilms and the gums that we see throughout the factory. So this is a really interesting thing to keep in mind as well. So, so far, um, we've found that microbial isolates are really useful um, when we isolate them from the different juice fractions and the biofilms, and um, we've been using them for these downstream studies to look at sucrose losses, um, mechanisms of EPS production, and uh, susceptibility testing to different biocides and oxidizers that we're getting started on. And my colleague, Dr. Evan Terrell, is gonna tell you a little bit about that testing we've been doing. And other projects um, include genomic analysis of a bunch of these microbial isolates so that we can determine the different dextrin sucrases and levan sucrases 
um, the enzymes that produce the EPS and see which, um, which of these genes are encoded in the genomes. And then from there, we can work on development of cell-free synthesis systems to make EPS. We can look for enzyme inhibitors. Um, there's lots of options for trying to solve some of these problems. So I'd just like to acknowledge my co-authors and the, the people who work together as a team at SRRC. And if you have any questions, I'd be happy to take them. No, we didn't. I wish that we would have. <laughs> so when you see, like, those bubbles in the field, you know, from split stalks, I mean, that's active degradation. Any idea what It's hard to say just based on looking at the bubbles. I know that when we've looked at sugar cane billets that have been harvested for other experiments, and you see those... Um, the pink microbes growing on some of the cane. I can tell you the pink microbe is usually a bacterium called Asaea. That's one of the isolates we got this year. Um, I wish we would have had swabs from the sugar cane. That would have been really nice. If anyone has samples. <laughs> The most prominent in the factories? Well, I think that's kind of a loaded question, and it seems to vary. But certain organisms tend to produce one or the other, either dextrans or fructans, at least during you know, processing in the factories. Yeah, so the gluconobacter produces leaven sucrase enzymes that produce fructan polymers, fructan exopolysaccharide. And we Yeah, I don't know which this is a different organism that I'm talking about. But we know Yeah. But there are multiple organisms that can produce fructans. I'm just talking about our isolates that we've actually sequenced the genome for, so we know which enzymes it has encoded. We've done additional carbohydrate chemistry that I haven't shown here today. We're getting ready to submit that somewhere. Yeah, I think the microbial uh, contaminants, they vary, you know, throughout the season and one, from one area and one time period to another. Um, if you remember back to the glucose and fructose ratios I showed you from the cultures, I do think that looking at the ratio of glucose to fructose can be predictive of what type of EPS is predominating in a culture or maybe even in the factory, whether it's dextrans or fructans. So 
the inverts? Yeah. So. Right. Well, these organisms, their enzymes have to use sucrose disaccharide, and they split the disaccharide, and then they put either the glucose or the fructose into their growing polymer chain. So they can't utilize uh, the inversion sugars. They can't utilize glucose or fructose alone for EPS. Thank you. Thank you. Very good.